Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Indianapolis, AFC South, Stampede Blue, let's air it out, fly route, let's air it out, topics, loaded like offense, co-centric, talk about it often, Stampede Blue, let's air it out, fly route, let's air it out. Welcome back to another Stampede Blue Colts cast, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host Matt Danley, thank you guys for coming back to the show. Uh, we are all set with free agency coming up right around the corner, a lot of a lot of things that we don't know yet. We don't know how many Colts, which Colts are going to be re-signed. We don't know who the Colts are going to go out and get. We think Chris Bauer is going to be a little more aggressive this offseason uh, to the uh, overwhelming uh, pleasing of the fan base. So uh, there's a lot that, uh, that we should expect here in the next couple weeks to be hearing about. Uh, but most of all, tonight we want to dive back in. And I know that the quarterback position is getting hit hard over the past several weeks and months, but let's look at it. That's just the way it is when you've got a situation that the Colts are uh, like the Colts are in right now. So uh, to help me out with that and to talk quarterbacks, a little bit of free agency and otherwise, I brought my man Mark Schofield on the show tonight. Mark, thank you for joining me, my man. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Matt, man, it's great to be with you. It's been too long since we had a chance to catch up. It's been a while, but it's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about tonight. We've got a lot of different directions we can go. I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about players that aren't named Tom Brady, so I'm excited <laughs> about that as well. Well, let's and let's get that out of the way right now uh, because a lot of what everybody's hearing in uh, Colts country is the Philip Rivers, which – and let's get your – I want to get your, uh, your, your thoughts on that real quick as well. Um, Philip Rivers is the name that everybody's hearing that's continued to be thrown around. Obviously, there are a ton of free agency quarter, or free agent quarterbacks uh, this offseason, much more than I- any normal season. So, Philip Rivers, does he make sense, of course, with his connections to Sirianni and Frank Reich? Does he make sense for other reasons? Yes, because you got the proven kind of the grit leader. You know, that's I think that's the main reason that I appreciate him. I always, I always, Mark, I always hated Philip Rivers back in the day. Oh yeah, when it was oh, yeah. Colts and Chargers in in the AFC title games or the uh, in the playoffs in general. I always just hated him because I was just like, man, he is such a crybaby. But I legitimately grew a passion, not a passion, but I always legitimately grew a uh, like an understanding or a. Uh, respect for him because the dude just was always coming to play he was always the guy who was taking care of things but his team just didn't come through now the the tables have kind of turned for him with age a little bit but right off the jump your opinion is Philip Rivers an upgrade over Jacoby Brissett I mean I think in certain sense he is I mean I think you you, you talked about the connections that he has you know you look at where Philip is Rivers is as a quarterback right now. Like I think, you know, maybe he's lost a bit of the fastball, but I think you can come in and run the Colts offense and run it efficiently. You know, you look at the ability to sort of a guy that can step into a huddle and take charge. And I know that Jacoby Brissett has taken on a leadership role with the Indianapolis Colts. I mean, that, that's something that he's done even when he was a backup, you know, last year and the team meeting and after the five-game losing streak and all that stuff. Like, he had a big role to do with that. But I think Phillip Rivers brings a bit of consistency that might be lacking from the Colts right now offensively. You know, he'll make some mistakes with the football, and everybody likes to joke about Philip Rivers' life is an endless strain of drives where he's down by seven in the fourth quarter, and he inevitably throws an interception. Like, mm-hmm. we all make those Twitter jokes. I understand that. But 
I think there is a level of consistency that he can bring. I think there's going to be some schematic familiarity if he does end up in Indianapolis. You look at what he was running, you know, out with the Chargers. And yes, there were some downfield Coriel type elements to it, but there were also some West Coast influences in that offense as well. You know, we don't have a lot of pure West Coast systems versus Coriel systems anymore. Everybody's got a mesh play. Everybody's got a Y cross. Everybody's got a variation of stick. So, you know, playbooks, they mesh more than we like to think about in the media world. But I do think that there will be some schematic familiarity. I, I do think there's an element of Phil Rivers where he is right now as a quarterback that could come in and run Frank Reich's offense and run it effectively. And so I understand that there's a lot of people making that sort of Phil Rivers connection to Indianapolis, especially if you think that if they do acquire a Rivers or a veteran quarterback, it doesn't necessarily preclude them from drafting a guy at 13 or maybe using those picks at 34 and 44 and coming back into the first round and grabbing somebody if they fall because then you're talking about somebody that might need some time. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's a, a Jacob Eason or a Jordan Love or somebody that shows some potential but needs some time to develop in season – Philip Rivers is a guy that can come in and they can give you six, eight, 10, 12, 16 games before you get to that next guy. And so I, I more than understand the idea that Rivers would make sense in Indianapolis. It does make sense to me to a certain extent. Yeah. It, it, one of the things I think that, I guess the one thing that I continue to think of when I think of, yes, they've got the connection with Frank Reich and, and, and Rivers. One of the things that happened, or that let me put it this way, that didn't happen when the two were together in uh, in San Diego, is that Frank Reich's offense is built for yak, right? I mean, that's what yeah. he that's what he tries to gain out of his offense and his schemes and in his route combinations and such. That just didn't occur when Philip Rivers was a quarterback in San Diego and he was the offensive coordinator. Yeah, and that's yeah. that to me is something that you. I mean. I, 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 I have to continue to think about that because it's a reality. That's just the way it right. was. And it was- is sort of that reality of that sort of more dogmatic West Coast offense, right? Where the offense is designed for the quarterback to get the ball out on time, in rhythm, mm-hmm. placed well, so the receiver has a chance to pick up yardage after the catch. Like you look at, for example, what's happening in Chicago and the struggles that they are having – in terms of getting that offense to run efficiently. Right. It all begins and ends with number 10. Mm-hmm. You know, Mitchell Trubisky has shown over the past two years of this Matt Nagy system that he can't do that. Right. Like, if it's just a simple curl route to Allen Robinson, he's throwing it when the separation is gone. Mm-hmm. Like, he's waiting to see it. And that's what leads to a failure in Yak. And when you have an offense that is predicated upon that pillar and it falls away, the offense falls to pieces. And right. so when you look at that part, Matt, it is a big question mark. You know, Philip Rivers, there are times when the ball doesn't come out when it needs to. There are times when he can make decisions, particularly when he's blitz, but there are times when he doesn't. You know, that's an inconsistency to his game. And so you do wonder about that outlet. That's why when I take a step back, and I know we're leading to this, and I'll sort of put the cart before the horse in a sense. When I take a step back and look at the sort of free agency landscape of quarterbacks, mm-hmm. I do think that there are better fits in their offense because of these reasons than Phillip Rivers. Mm-hmm. And that name, one name is Drew Brees. Like I look at Drew Brees and I think he's a guy that can come in and run that offense and get you yardage after the catch and make those quick decisions. The guy's a computer on the field, but he's said – just the other day, I'm who that nation for life. Yeah, that leads us to the other guy, and that's Tom Brady. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, I wrote this, I've written it a couple of times. I think the fit of Tom Brady in what Frank Reich wants his offense to look like makes almost too much sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the New England offense, similarly predicated on yardage after the catch, similarly predicated on the quarterback making the right read, getting the ball out of his hands on time in rhythm well-placed to guys in space so they can create after the reception and to take advantage of mismatches in the you know passing game. That's what Tom Brady does. That's what Indianapolis wants their offense to look like. And the other thing that I will mention is I'm sure at some level Tom Brady is thinking, I have spent 20 years playing in New England in December, mm-hmm. and I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, Matt, I'm 43. I'm seven months older than Tom Brady. 
I don't like going outside just when it's cold, right. let alone trying to throw a football, let alone trying to throw a football when 295-pound men that can run the 40 and 4-5 are trying to take my head off. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure at some level the idea of playing eight games at Lucas Oil in Indianapolis, which is a lovely city. I was just out there. It's got to be appealing, I think, at some level to Tom Brady. So I put all these pieces together, and I think if I'm Tom Brady from his perspective, I want to be able to win, but I want to be successful, and I want to be in an offense that caters to what I do. That's Indianapolis. I think Indianapolis, beyond the Chargers or some of these other teams that have been bandied about for Brady, makes a ton of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And and that was you know, referenced to uh, an article that you just put up on uh, Touchdown Wire there. Uh, one free agent for each NFL team. You guys can go check that out. Uh, Mark does always a great job. He's he's written for so many different publications, and they've all been fantastic. Uh, but Tom Brady was who you put on this particular article, and it kind of caught my attention because uh, aside from the fact that when we started hearing the hubbub around Brady possibly leaving New England, you know, everybody's like, ooh, what do we think about him in Indianapolis? And I think that I just can't get my brain to accept that that might even be a possibility you know it, it just I, I guess it just doesn't I, I, I would I think that that would be a better situation most definitely than Philip Rivers don't get me wrong um, however throughout this process I've tried to be I guess I feel like I've tried to be more realistic about it thinking about best possible scenario for the Indianapolis Colts headed into the 2020 season right yeah. so I'm thinking okay they get that fiery leader in Philip Rivers. Um, they do whatever they're going to do with Brissett, whether they decide to trade him. Now, uh, I, I did see something on Twitter uh, was it yesterday or the day before. Somebody mentioned possibly combining and packaging up Brissett and that first uh, second round pick to move up and get their quarterback of the future. I thought that was interesting, you know, possibly a uh, possibility in them. Uh, I can't remember where they said. Anyways, um, I thought it was an interesting thought, you know, and, and – you, you realize that you can't have Rivers or Brady, whoever it is, you know, obviously uh, a free agent quarterback of someone uh, of that caliber, Brissett and a first-round pick. That just is right. not going to work in a locker room. No, There's just no two ways about it. So I'm, I've tried to consider everything that, the, that, that could possibly happen, and I just start loving some of these guys – you know, the combinations, I guess, of quarterbacks. Okay, so is it Tom Brady in a, in a first-round pick? Is it Phillip Rivers in a second round? You know, just all this other right. stuff. Or is it Phillip Rivers and Jacoby Brissett and the Colts just kind of make a wash of it this year and try to go at the quarterback position next year? You just never know, uh, especially with Chris Ballard because he just doesn't – the guy doesn't flinch. You know, he comes up with a game plan and he goes after it. Um, so it, it, it's – it's really intriguing to me that you did choose Tom Brady for the Indianapolis Colts. And for all the reasons that you wrote in the piece and then just uh, explained here on the show, but it just, I, I just never could see that happening. It, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I totally agree with you on the, on it, all those. Aspects. It's, it's funny, Matt. Like when I initially wrote, like the first iteration of that idea was last week I wrote, you know, best scheme fits for the free agent quarterbacks. And I wrote Brady and Indianapolis there too. Mm-hmm. You know, and I got pushed back. A lot of people saying, oh, he'd never go to Indianapolis. Like he, he wouldn't go to Indy. Like that would never happen. No way. Both from Patriots fans and from Colts fans. Mm-hmm. And when this piece came out again, I'm getting that same sort of pushback. And I think part of it is, and obviously, you know, being a Patriots guy and hosting a Patriots podcast, <laughs> I've been talking about Tom Brady a ton. Right. You know, and, you know, whether it's, you know, I was on a Titan show recently, you know, I, I was on a Patriots show the other night, like doing all these different shows, doing different radio hits around the country, around the world, whatever. Obviously, the Brady comes up and people seem to just they can't fathom the idea of tom brady in any other uniform yeah you know whether it's the silver and black with the raiders or the powder blue with the chargers or even the pewter with the buccaneers like we've heard that rumbling a bit or you know the the white and the blue with the colts like people just can't fathom tom brady in a different uniform and and that's part of the whole process i think that everybody's going through which is we're just not ready for Tom Brady's career to end. Did you talk to people that aren't Patriots fans? And they will still say, like, look, he, his career shouldn't end anywhere else but in New England. But mm-hmm. things end badly. Tom Brady's dad years ago famously said that when things end, they have a tendency to end poorly, mm-hmm. especially 
in New England. Like, New England, we have a rather checkered past when it comes to saying goodbye to some of our sports legends. Like, not too many get to ride off in the sunset wearing a Boston uniform. Like, David Ortiz, perhaps, and a Pedro Martinez. But for every one of those, there's more stories like Ted Williams, who they just basically ran out of town and didn't really like until it was years later and he had been retired for decades. Right. Or, you know... You know, Ray Bork was that perhaps an example of where it ended well. But we typically don't end well with our stars. Ray Allen might not even get into the Patriots like Wall of Fame because of how he went to Miami. Like there's often bitterness. There's often discontent with Patriots fans or New England fans and some of the people that have gone on to different places. Brady might be another situation. I I I'd be stunned if that happened. I mean, again, the guy delivered six Super Bowl titles, mm-hmm. but Things do, like Brady's dad said, have a tendency to end badly when it comes to sports. I mean, you look at not quarterbacks not named Brady. You know, Joe Montana, his career ended in a Chiefs uniform. Brett right. Favre with the Jets. You know, Joe Namath with the Rams. Like Manning Broncos. It, Manning with the Broncos. Like, it's a business more than anything else. And sometimes there just comes a time when the economics or the level of play or for whatever reason – it just makes sense to move on. And with the Patriots and Bill Belichick and the decisions they have to make at positions other than quarterback and the economics of things, this might be one of their moments where because of the business aspect to it, it's time for everybody to move on. And I just think if that does come to fruition, if I'm Tom Brady, if I'm the Coles, I think that marriage makes sense. Yeah. And and like you said, there isn't a single one of those guys you mentioned that finished their career in another uniform that looked normal. No. None of them. No. Not a I mean, Touchdown one. Wire, we had like a couple of days ago, like an article about like 23 quarterbacks who looked odd in their last jersey or something like that. And <laughs> the, the NFL, is, it's filled with guys where it's just like, I forgot that he played. Like, you know, the the Favre Jets part. Is, right. yeah, always, that's we remember one. the Vikings, but I that whole Jets thing was weird that for, was. for an extent of time. I mean, you know, obviously Namath, for example, that's another one where he was wearing that Rams uniform. It's just like, this doesn't make sense. You know, Montana with the Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, there are some quarterbacks where it's like, this guy was always a 49er to me. Mm-hmm. And but even he ended his career with the Chiefs. Maybe even a, in a much less weird or awkward, but even Kurt Warner. You know what I mean? Yeah. The I mean, Cardinals, the Giants. Yeah. Like, yeah. He looked weird in that too. And it wasn't yeah. like he was in the league for 30 years. You know what I mean? It was just... It was just different. I don't think any of those guys look normal in a new uniform. So that that is definitely a, a thing for sure. Uh, yep. folks, folks, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back with more from Mark Schofield. Most of the time we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Mark, let's talk about this draft class because this is kind of where I think that the Colts likely are going to make their bread and butter um, in terms of who they decide to bring in, who they kind of decide against. You just never know. There's a whole lot going on. And let me get this out of the way because this I, I feel like this is going to be hot take city. And I'm going to let, just let you kind of you know thrash me real quick on, on <laughs> this one because I cannot get myself to fall in love with Tua. Okay. I can't, Look, man. Yeah, I will say this, Matt. There are many like you. You know, you go out to the combine, you talk to people. There are many people that say, even if you take the medical part away from the evaluation, mm -hmm. there are still flaws to his game. Yeah. And when I watch him, I think he's still, between the lines, without the medical stuff, a, a very complete quarterback prospect, but he does have flaws. And for some people, those flaws might be, I don't want to say fatal, mm -hmm. but they might give you serious pause. You know, some people might say that he was playing with three first round wide receivers. Well, you know, that doesn't bother me too much. But here's the things about his game that do bother me. One, I do think that there is sort of a reliance on his athletic ability, his ability to create with his legs, his ability to break the pocket and sort of keep plays alive. Sometimes it's good. When you're making throws on the move, we do like to see that. But sometimes it spirals out of control. Look at the interception he threw in the end zone against Tennessee where he makes a nice move, escapes some pressure. It's first and goal. Throw the ball away to him. Like throw it into the fifth row. That guy eating popcorn in the tenth row, hit him in the face with it. Like don't <laughs> force a throw. And that's what he does and he gets picked. Like when you throw a, a pick in the end zone on first and goal, like I'm going to have a problem with that. Unless there's like two seconds left and you got to make a play. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if it's fourth and goal and you got to make a play, like fine, but no. So that kind of hero ball moment, he needs to dial back. I think he can do that, but that is an issue. There's another issue with him. The tendency to assume, and this might be a byproduct or a function of having that talent around him. But when you look at, he only threw two, th he only threw three interceptions last year. One was the Tennessee one. Right. And the other two, the one against AM and the one against LSU, he assumed what the coverage was going to be and didn't do enough to confirm it post snap. That might be okay and you might be able to survive with the talent he has around him, you know, playing at Alabama. That's not going to work when you're going up against what Bill Belichick dials up to beat you with. That's not going to work when you're going up against some of the other great defensive minds in this league or when you get some safeties out there that are going to bait you into mistakes. Like the, the A&M interception, it's another sort of red zone throw. They're running Haas, so he's got the mirrored hitch seams to both sides of the field with a juke route underneath. They just basically run cover two. Backside safety, he assumes he's going to stay capped on that vertical route, and he doesn't do enough to confirm that. And the backside safety just reads his eyes, jumps under the other seam for a pick. Or the one against LSU, he assumes pre-snap that they're going to be in some sort of single high man underneath coverage and assumes that the linebacker underneath is going to stay on the shallow, so he throws the dig. The linebacker's playing zone, reads his eyes, and makes the pick. And so there are moments like that with him where it's like, look, you're doing too much to assume that you're right. Mm -hmm. I know you, as a quarterback, you have to make quick reads, particularly down in the red zone, particularly down in the scoring area. But at the same time, you got to be sure of what you're seeing. And so that's a situation where you can almost extrapolate that forward and say, look, maybe he never gets to that level. Maybe he never gets to the point where he's making those decisive reads and doing it the right way and moving away from that assumption type mindset. If he doesn't get there, that's going to be a problem for him in the NFL. Now, I don't think that's fatal. I do think that that's something that he can work with and develop and refine and get better at. But those are some problems that he does have. He's not a perfect prospect. None of the guys in this draft class are. Right. right. Like, even though Burrow is considered by many to be the cleanest prospect since Luck, since others, he still has some holes to his game. Like, he's not a complete guy. And so, and that's sort of the difficulty with quarterback evaluation generally. It's the difficulty with quarterback evaluation for guys like you and me that are doing it on the outside looking in. We don't get all the information. We're not going to find none of these guys are complete. And with the information we have, we can get as close as we can to an evaluation. But yeah, I can understand why you and others are sort of Burroughs 
I mean, two is good, but and that's, there's something here. And that's where I sit at with him. I think I think two is good, but mm-hmm. I don't think he's. I don't think I. I just I get to that point where I say I don't love him. And kind of back to that LSU game that you were talking about. There's something that I wrote down. You tell me if if you caught any of this through that game that he was still struggling working back across the field after his initial. And I wrote eye fake in in quotations because I didn't feel like it was actual eye discipline that he was using. I felt like he was just turning his head in anticipation that that guy on the other side of the field is going to be open. And it looked like he just threw all willy-nilly across. Like, Granted, he didn't have a crap ton of, of picks, as you mentioned. He only had three right. last year. But the point was is that just to me, it, it was almost like Eason's inability to step up into the pocket or lack of ability to step up rather than just to roll. That seemed like that was kind of Tua's um, – I don't, I don't like his his flaw that I caught the most of throughout the games that I I think I watched seven games so far of yeah. his, and that was something that I wrote down. Um, and, and the other thing that I just and like I said, it's only seven games, but I I didn't love his downfield accuracy. Yeah, I mean, the downfield accuracy part, like I think the arm talent is good enough to run sort of a vertical based passing offense, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's a strength of his. Okay, like. I think both Tua and Burrow are similar in that if I'm looking at scheme fits for these guys, I want them in more West Coast rooted offenses than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think both could, you know, they could both function in sort of a Patriots based Ernst Perkins system, time and rhythm stuff, more intermediate areas of the field and things like that. But I think ideally you want them in a West Coast system, quicker decisions, shorter areas of the field to attack yardage after the catch type offenses I, I think Tua has a very quick release which is going to help him I think the Sarkeesian like the RPO stuff they were doing it's going to help him in sort of that quick based decision type of offense like the downfield stuff is a bit sparty there are times when he can make some nice touch throws there are times when it's like not as crisp as or or not as good as you'd like to see mm-hmm. um and so yeah I mean I'm with you on that too so Let's let's get off of Tua because I, I mean I, he's just one of those guys that if there's anything that's that, that is if there's a guy that's going to fall um, that he mainly because of the medicals but I kind of feel like that he might be a guy that the Colts if the Colts fell in love with him that they would probably spend some capital to move up and get so that was one guy I wanted to get on with you yeah. but uh, let's talk about Justin Herbert because he's another one that really intrigues me. I have only done a few games on him so far. I wanted to kind of hang on to him and, and do him a little bit later with some of these smaller school guys um, going first. But tell me tell me what you love about Justin Herbert. Is Arm there talent any? Is and there athleticism. Anything? Okay, okay. Like, <laughs> I, like, I mean, I, I think, you know, when I do this every year, there are plays, there are moments, there are reads, there are throws that sort of stick with me. That, you know, inevitably I get on a show, I get on a radio bit, and I find myself, you know, it's something I can go to. It's like a comedian when he feels the room slipping away. He's got that joke he can come back to and just bring the audience back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last year it was Daniel Jones, the Ohio go flat. He was reading against. Virginia, and it was like that moment. I was like, okay, well, it could still sort of work for him. You know, this year with Justin Herbert, there's a throw he had not this past season, but the one prior, so it was junior year against Cal. It was a switch vertical concept to the left, balls on the right hash bar. He throws it to the left sideline. They switch the de- they don't switch the defenders, so the inside guys playing inside leverage to come across. It's probably a 45 yard throw on the field. But it's right hash to left sideline, so it's more than that. And Matt, he, he turns it into a back shoulder throw on the line. And it's just, that's arm talent you can't teach. <laughs> and one of the things that I love about Herbert is that sort of ability to understand and read leverage. It's something that you saw from him last year. It's something you saw from him the year prior, like I was talking about. And, and the more, you know, as a admittedly poor, failed shell of an ex-quarterback at just the Division three level that barely counts for anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I always used to sort of harp on the ability to sort of read and diagnose and decipher defense and sort of read all their rotated from cover one to cover two. But the more I watch the college game and the evolution of offenses as it trickles up into the NFL game, the more I realize that it's not so much whether you can tell me or what draw up for me the division between 
you know, stump and stubby and all these different variations of coverages. Can you put the ball away from the nearest leveraged defender? Like, can you throw to space? Can you read and decipher that, whether it's in front of your face or 50 yards downfield, like I just described with Herbert? Herbert can do that, Mm -hmm. and I love that about him. Now, there's the athleticism, I think, which is great, but there are flags with him, one of which is the offense he was asked to run. And you'll see this once you get, and I'm sure you've already seen this. Mm-hmm. Little bit. work you've done on him. Mm-hmm. It's bubbles. It's yes. tunnels. Right. It's stuff along the boundary. He's not asked to attack the middle of the field a ton. When he does, it's a bit uneven in the execution and production and the results. Like There are times when I feel like, even with the arm that he has, he doesn't know properly how to layer throws in the middle of the field. Like he had a pick against Cal this year on a seam route down near the red zone where it's like, I felt like he didn't know how to put the ball where it needed to be. Even though he made the right read, it was the wrong type of throw. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where we get into the difference between say arm strength and arm talent. Right. Because the ability to sort of layer those throws underneath or over the middle over that linebacker, over those underneath zone defenders, but in front of those safeties. Like, that's some stuff you have to f- learn a feel for. It's like, you know, when we get out of the golf, when you get out of the golf course and everybody has their GPS, you know, trackers or on their phone or whatever, and they can get a yardage down to like the, a millimeter of where they are. But then when you're inside of 70 yards or so and you get the, the pitching wedge out, it's all about feel, right? Right. You know, it's that same sort of moment on the football field where he has to learn feel for those moments. That's going to be a work in progress. And because of the way Oregon structured their offense, he doesn't have that feel yet. So that's going to be a work in progress. And then there's the other sort of red flag on him, which is something that, you know, obviously we can't get into too much, but it's something that he's brought up with us, whether it's down in Mobile or at the combine, which is the leadership role. You know, he's talked at length about how he's a shy, quiet kid. He's an introvert. He's reading that book, Leadership for Introverts. Like, he knows that he has to take on that leadership role. It's what he told us flat out at the start of Senior Bowl week, and then you saw him try to do it. But that's going to be a part of the evaluation for these teams. You know, I, I think for Herbert, when I, you know, before the combine, I wrote a piece over at Matt Walden's site about the most important place in Indianapolis for each of these draft quarterbacks. And for Justin Herbert, I wrote it was the hotel suite. It was for him to walk into a meeting with, whether it's Frank Reich or Sean Payton or the guys with the Colts or the Chargers or whoever, Matt Rule with the Panthers, whoever he wants to get drafted by, Mm -hmm. to look them in the eye and say, I can lead grown men to victory. Mm -hmm. I can be a leader. I know that there are reports that you walk into the Oregon locker room and he's the quiet guy in the corner. I can still lead your franchise. I can be the face of your franchise. Like, you know, he told us that was going to be important. I thought that was the most important place in the Indy for him. Now, I'm curious to see the reports. I haven't heard much about how those went. But, yeah, I mean, he has a lot that he brings to the table. There are some question marks. I do like him as a prospect. I think in that next tier of quarterbacks, he's at the top of that next tier for me after, you know, I've got Burrow and then Tua and then the next tier, I've got Herbert at the top of that list. But, there are, like I said, he's not a perfect quarterback. None of these guys are. Mm-hmm. Do you think that leadership issue, like with an introverted kid, do you think that, that that's something that, I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're sitting behind a guy who is a very vocal leader, that, that's something that, that, that resonates with you and, and may, you may find that you can push that out of your personality eventually. But if that, is that something, if he comes in, he's got to start day one at any place. Is that something he can just kind of, is that just comfort within the locker room that he can become that guy? I mean, or is yeah, that something that he's got to have inside of him right as he walks in the door? I mean, it's 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 a comfort. Like, I think a good way to look at this is, you know, despite, you know, everything I was just talking about, despite what Justin Herbert himself has told the media, there's more than one way to be a leader at the quarterback position. And I think if I'm Justin Herbert or I'm one of his advisors or I'm his agent or somebody close to him, I'm telling him, you need to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And there's more than one way to be a leader at the quarterback position. You can be the fiery, rah-rah, Philip Rivers type guy, even to some extent the Tom Brady type guy who's going to be vocal, who's going to get in people's faces, who's going to be sometimes outlandish on the sidelines. But there's another way to do it. You look at Carson Wentz, 
And I, I've been told by people that cover the Eagles, I've been told by people in and around Philadelphia, in, in and around that locker room, that he's not really that big of a rah-rah type guy. He has moments and he's come, come out of his shell a little bit. But when he first got to Philadelphia, he was a guy that was going to lead by his play on the field. He was going to be a guy that was going to lead by sometimes putting his body on the line, sometimes fighting when he should just take a sack. And that might have even led to some injuries. Mm -hmm. But guys do want to play for him now because they see him putting his body on the line. They see him diving for first downs and diving for touchdowns. And you remember how he hurt his knee back when they had their run to the Super Bowl. It was diving into the end zone on a run trying to score a touchdown. And he didn't, and right. he stayed in there, and he threw a touchdown on the next play on a, a torn ACL. Mm -hmm. Like, you can inspire those around you even if you're not that sort of fiery, motivational speaker type. You can be that quiet leader through your play. And I think, you know, if I were Justin Herbert's advisors, like I said, I would you say, look, you know, Justin, if you're not that vocal leader type – be the other type. Like, th like, there's more than one way to sort of fill that role in a locker room. I think. Right, I agree. I, I but it, it just always made me wonder: Do yeah. people think that they don't come in like the guy who's standing in the middle of the entire roster in college? If, well, he's not doing that. We can't trust him to be a leader in our locker room. You know, I, I kind of was curious as to. Yeah, I mean, look, not everybody's going to be Baker Mayfield, right? Right. Like Baker Mayfield is that kind of guy that. Hugh Jackson described him as the Pied Piper, right? Mm -hmm. Hugh Jackson told that story about Baker's Pro Day where you know he walks into the bubble and everybody knows he's there. It was like that at the Senior Bowl when Baker was down there. Like When he walked onto the field at Lad Peebles, it was like a light switch got flipped. Like You knew Baker was on the field. He's just that kind of personnel. But not everybody's that way. And sometimes that personnel only gets you so far. I mean, look at what Cleveland did this year. Like There's more to it. Like And, and sometimes... You know, when you're trying to be a 21 to 23 year old kid, rookie, being that vocal, fiery guy, some 34 year old veterans might look at you and say, Look, this isn't high school, man. Right. We're professionals now. Like, like, so, like anything else, you've sort of got to like find that balance and find that sort of, you know, that ability to sort of read the room a bit, sort of like out. a comedian and, and yeah. see what the moment calls for. Yeah, feel out feel out your roster a bit and right. see what kind of a reception you think you're going to get by being yeah. one way or the other, I suppose. Um, so let's talk about these next two guys together, and then we'll get to kind of the field, so to speak. Uh, Jordan Love, obviously, he's gotten a lot of talk. Uh, the, a lot of people have been mocking him or talking about him to the Colts. Uh, Jacob Eason, I want to I talk about him uh, in this same conversation because I kind of feel like these two – um, nothing alike, of course, in the way that they quarterback a team. However, there's all the talk about Jacob Eason having maybe a higher floor than Jordan Love and Jordan Love having a higher ceiling possibly than Jacob Eason. And, and this is, to me, is very interesting and, and something that I wanted to gauge your perspective on because I kind of feel the same way. I fell in love with Jacob Eason, not because of his arm, but Okay, I don't have a I don't have a back a second a second punch here on that one. It wasn't because of his arm that I fell in love with him though. I started falling in love with him because I started seeing his opposite hash to boundary throws. I started seeing him drop balls in the bucket in the back corner of the end zones. And there are just so many things that I I was like, "Oh my god, I could can you imagine this guy with another burner from this wide receiver class, TY Hilton, a couple of possession guys underneath. I just it just made me gush." You know, and, and then of course you you watch Jordan Love, and then you see his his ability to kind of flick that wrist, his ability to make some of those big plays, the athleticism that he can get out of the pocket. Whereas Jacob Eason is not that kind of guy, and so I, I just feel like I I I think I have a preference of Eason over Love because I'm scared to death of Love's floor, and I think that's it. But at the same time, I also feel like Eason is kind of he falls into kind of that category for me as well. I mean, whereas others are saying he might have a higher floor, it, I'm not so sure about that either because he is kind of that tall, lanky guy. He, I don't want to say Ryan Leaf, but he kind of comes off in the same manner in terms of his speech. That doesn't bother me too much in terms of how he talks. He's just a different guy at the podium. You know what I mean? So yep. I've uh, kind of rambled on this, but yeah, no, th these, um, these two fight each other in my head literally every day when I think about them. Yeah, no, and I, I think they're sort of in that 
you know, in, in this next tier of quarterbacks, at least the way I've got them tiered, there's Herbert and then there's Love and there's Eason. And you could, or you could have an Eason and Love. And I can see why you might be going back and forth on them every single day. Like there are times that I've done that as well. I do think that there is some credence to the idea that Eason has the better floor. Love might have the higher ceiling. I think the NFL, from what I've been told by multiple people, feels the same way, not just with Eason, but you can lump Herbert in that mix as well. Right, yeah, that's so true the, too. The league looks at Love and they think, look, man, this could be a home run type pick in the right situation. And I think a lot of people look at, say, Josh Allen from two years ago and think there's a lot of similarities between Love and Josh Allen. And if you're going to roll the dice on a guy and just hope that he you can get as close as you can to that ceiling – why not roll the dice on a guy like Jordan Love, bet on the arm and the athleticism, and if you whiff on it and if it totally goes south on you, mm-hmm. you're going to be kicking a quarterback again soon. Right, and right. why not, right? And I know a lot of people think that you know Love is sort of that guy that you're going to roll the dice on and just bet on the potential. You know What's interesting about Eason and why I think he has sort of the safer floor is that when I watch Eason, you know, I see somebody that's doing a lot of the things, like you said, like those opposite field hash, opposite hash throws, the touchdown field. I mean, when you were talking, I I started thinking about the idea of, you know, drafting Easton at 13 and then somehow a Denzel Mims falls to you at 34. Like now you're cooking with gas in that offense. Like you can right. do some fun things with that combination. Right. You know, I look at the ability of him to do some of that under center Back to the defense off of play action when you turn your eyes from the secondary and then you have to come up firing and you have that you have that second or half second less to read the defense. Not a lot of guys are doing that in this class. Burrow's doing it. Jake Fromm, who I want to mention in a bit, is doing it. Mm-hmm. Eason's doing that too. And Eason's also a guy that's willing to attack the middle of the field with more consistency. It might not always work. He might not always read the middle of the field precisely right. But as I just talked about, I'm becoming more of an advocate of the idea that just make a right leverage throw. Right. Like if you make the raw, what looks to me to be the wrong read against cover two because you think it's cover three, but you still make the play because you throw it to the right spot, I'm starting to feel like that's okay. Like that's still going to work in the NFL. And so the fact that Eason might not always read the middle of the field right, but he's willing to attack it more than a guy like, to some extent, Love, and certainly to an extent like Justin Herbert, like I think that works in his favor, particularly when you take into account the time off that he had. Mm-hmm. And so you put that together, and I see like a quarterback that can certainly be an effective NFL quarterback that gets to the floor part, but in the right situation could really hit that ceiling even if it's not the ceiling that, say, a Jordan Love has. Now, there are some problems. In addition to the inconsistencies reading in the middle of the field, there's sort of that ultimate plan B with him, which is I'm just going to flush myself out, yeah, bail is, out from the pocket, which is and awful. try to make a ridiculous throw or stumble awkwardly upfield. Yeah. Like, I'd like to see him click and climb the pocket with a bit more consistency. Like, I'd like to see that from him. Some guys will learn it. Some guys don't. And that's a question he's going to have to answer. And so you know, that's something that I'm sort of struggling with with him. But I certainly – I get the floor seems to be safer with him. Love is a bet on the upside. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I was just on with Pat, Paul Parcheesi, uh, the guys over at Saturday Sunday. And I said to them what I'll say here is that if I'm – a fan of an organization that drafts Jordan Love, or if I'm an owner of a team that drafts Jordan Love, I am praying that there is evidence of a track record that develops quarterbacks and develops them well. Right. Okay? Which is why I think that Indianapolis would be a good fit for Jordan Love, because there is at least some evidence of Frank Wright getting something out of Andrew Luck, even though, look, Andrew Luck, elite talent, we get that. But then even at times from Jacoby Brissett, even dated back to when Frank Reich was in Philadelphia and what he was able to do with Carson Wentz, there's at least a track record of him molding quarterbacks and getting something out of them and getting them close to what you were hoping for when you turned in the card with their name on it. Now, whereas, say, the Chargers with a a new offensive coordinator, there's not that track record. And so if I'm somebody that's hopeful that Jordan Love has a long career in the NFL, I think Indianapolis is a good fit for him. Mm -hmm. There will be some work to be done. You know, there is 
as we shall say, as he told us, those 17 teachable moments, those 17 interceptions that he had, where some of them, like the LSU game, it's like, look, you're down. you got to make something happen. You're forcing throws. Like, I get it. But then there's some against Wake Forest where it's like, I don't know what you're seeing. Right. Like, I don't know what you're reading. And whether it was a switch in the offensive system or what, like, he took a step back last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let, we me, were, let me let me if, cut in real quick on this because yeah. I really want your I want your honest opinion on this. This is one of the things that have it leveled love out for me because everybody talks about his fantastic 2018 season versus uh, a down 2019. I saw the same throws in 2018. Oh, yeah. They just didn't happen to get picked. They didn't get picked. Like I've said this before, Matt. I think that's exactly right. He had the 17 teachable moments last year. He could have had easily had 17 teachable moments the year prior. I agree. Like I, I think he did look at times more decisive and confident on film. Like that's something that I saw from him like two years ago as to last year. But there were still those mistakes. I think it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of well, he didn't have so many interceptions and sort of box score scouted it away. It's like, well, to borrow a phrase from Key and Faye, he still had 17 interceptable balls. Like, <laughs> it was still it's, there. It's, so It's not wrong, though. That's true. It's not wrong. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is that element to it. But, you know, the scouts, evaluators, coaches, they look at the arm. They look at the athleticism. They look at some of the, the splash throws. Like, you know, I mentioned the Herbert throw earlier. Mm. You know, one of my favorite throws from Love is the post route he threw against LSU that was dropped. Oh, it was like, beautiful too. That was you put that on the money. Yeah, and that was early in the game. That's a potential walk-in touchdown. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about ripple effects or butterfly effects? If that's a touchdown, there, I, I forget the exact score at the time, but they're if not tied. They're leading. Right down in Death Valley early. Yeah, like in the next time he touches I, the ball, they're down two scores. Yeah. So <laughs> again, like it, there are some moments where you're like, I was talking to Eric at home from Yahoo about him and about that LSU game. And it's like, there are three or four throws where you're like, I don't know what you're thinking. And then there are three or four throws where you're like, please give me that. Yeah. Just a like, little bit. Put that in my offense. And so <laughs> you know that NFL decision makers are going to look at that and say, if we can harness that we're going to be cooking with something special here. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that's why when I talk to people with teams or the cover teams that say, yeah, we keep hearing that everybody likes love. They're so high on him. It's that. It's that plus their belief in themselves to develop a quarterback. Now, not every team can do it. That's why I think love is one of those guys where, where he ends up is critical. Mm-hmm. You no, know, I think Indianapolis is a place where it could work. Because there is that sort of track record of success with getting something out of quarterbacks and coaching them up a bit. There are other places where I just wouldn't be assured. But I think Indianapolis would be a spot where it could happen. I think that makes sense uh, as much as anything. Guys, we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to come back up and finish the show with Mark Schofield here. All right, Mark, a couple more things I want to get at you, and I know you want to talk about Jake Fromm. Let's talk about a guy that both of us, I, I didn't expect to like him. I really just didn't expect to like him. I was happened to be writing an article on him, and I saw that you did a YouTube post on him, and it kind of just made me feel better. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I did like him. It's Anthony Gordon out of Washington yes. State. He's a little yes. light. He's a little, I wouldn't say short, but he's not the he's not the 6'4 frame that you want from a quarterback, ideally, I suppose, in, in, in this perfect world of quarterbacks that we have. But like I said, he's a little light. But I, man, I liked a lot about him. Uh, please tell us yeah, what, what you look, saw I, and what you liked. I, I, first of all, when I watched him on film, um, and I, I tweeted about this, and I, I I do a lot of shows. I do a lot of work with Matt Waldman. Uh, we all know and love Matt. He's like sort of the godfather of draft Twitter. And I, when I started watching Gordon like months ago, I told Matt, I know we're going to do a show next week. I have a ridiculous comparison for you. It's not a one-to-one comparison. You know I hate comps, but I just want to drop it to you on the air and get your reaction. And that comp was Patrick Mahomes. And now I'm not saying that he's the next Mahomes. I'm not saying he's anywhere in that stratosphere of prospect because I was high on Mahomes. He was my QB2 that year. But – when I was watching Gordon, I was seeing him drop the arm angle and move the arm angle around and th- make these off-platform throws. And I'm like, I was reminded of a tweet from Justice Mosqueda, who now works at the XFL. And he said this a while ago. He's like, look, you know, 
the guys that grew up watching Montana, like the Bradys, mm-hmm. they're phasing out of the league. Now we're getting the guys that watch Brett Favre. And he said this a couple of years ago. And I was reminded of that because I'm like, now we're starting to get kids that were watching Mahomes. And they want to be Mahomes, right? Right. And so you see these guys like Gordon drop the arm angle. I put out a funny tweet where he did it on a wide open crossing route and he missed it because he was like, drop the arm angle and like look, made a no look throw. And it was like horribly off target. I was just like, this is just <laughs> funny, but we're going to see kids do this and it's going to be great fun. Um, but that's sort of the vibe I got. So when I dropped that on Matt, he's like, yeah, I kind of saw the same thing. Like he's got that sort of willingness to make these sort of ridiculous off-platform throws and to try things that are a little bit audacious. And when you ask him about that at the combine, he's like, yeah, I grew up playing baseball. I was a middle infielder. And so I'm used to just grabbing the ball and just getting it out any way I can. So if that's sidearm or underhand or whatever, I'm going to do it. And so he's, he's a ton of fun to talk to. You know, I asked him about his favorite play to run, and he said it was Y cross because, look, as Gardner Minshew told me two years ago at the Senior Bowl, Mike Leach's offense, remember all the things people say about, oh, it's the air raid and it's not a real offense. He's like, Gardner Mitchell was like, look, I'm running four or five progression reads full field on every single play. Like, that's more than the quote unquote NFL pro style offenses do. And he literally, Matt, hit me with the air quotes when he said it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I sort of swooned about Gardner. Yeah. <laughs> but Gordon told me the same thing. He's like, I love running Y cross. Why? Because I had a go route, a crosser, a dig, and a curl. Mm -hmm. Four reads, left to right, full field, every single play. We would run it and run it and run it, and you couldn't stop it. Well, I mean, teams could stop it, but still. Like, that's four progression reads deep. When you got Justin Herbert, you're watching him, and he's either throwing the bubble or the go. Like, this is the progression read stuff that Mike Leach quarterbacks are asked to do on every single play that not a lot of guys are doing. And and so you put that together. He's a ton of fun to watch. I think in the right situation, he could certainly work in the National Football League. He needs to fix the footwork. Look, the footwork is a mess. One of the things I loved about Gardner was when he would make those, you know, go to crosser, to dig, to curl, full field reads, his feet were always moving in rhythm with him underneath, always ready to throw. Gordon, his feet are statuesque, like they're in cement. Mm-hmm. So he, he'll just keep him down the middle of the field and just like, like scan with his eyes. So he almost forces himself to make an off-platform throw. So he needs to fix that. He's working on it with Sage Rosenfeld. But I know I follow a lot of Colts fans on Twitter. Uh, I see a lot of them now with their screen names, Anthony Gordon in round two. I get it. <laughs> Anthony Gordon in round three. I get it. Like, yeah, he, he's a ton of fun to watch. You can tell that he loves the game, that he understands the game. And, you know, if the Colts decide to go down a different path and say, you know, maybe they do get Tom Brady, you know, but they want to develop a guy for two years from now. Yeah. Draft Anthony Gordon. I I think he could be a great, uh, not, I don't want to say a great quarterback, Mm -hmm. but I think the potential is there for him to hit his sort of ceiling in the National Football League in the right setting. And I think Indianapolis could be a kind of setting where it could work. Yeah, I was when I was watching his games, I was kind of seeing like where where does where does he excel? You know, what against what coverages, what what fronts. And I saw him against man and you know when he's against press, you know you want your quarterback to excel against that. I didn't see him fail necessarily against press, but I saw a right. lot more success against off-man coverage. Um yeah. and in in UCLA he just he burned up that their cover 3 looks all game long. And I yeah. thought n- Maybe UCLA doesn't run a good cover three. I don't know. But he was just murdering it, whether it was short and across the field, whether it was deep with a single high. It was a beautiful thing to watch, and that yeah. was kind of what made me swoon about He's him. He's very good at sort of deciphering underneath zones mm-hmm. as well as deeper zones and finding those soft spots. And part of it is like, look, in, in their offense, Leach, he has what, like 15, 20 plays? Yeah. <laughs> and so you're going to have a ton of reps against this these looks, so you're going to know how to find those soft spots. But it works, and it shows you evidence of, again, getting back to the idea of sort of attack and leverage. Like he can do that. Like he had a throw, I think it was – it was against. It was one of their earlier games. I forget the name of the school he was playing, but he was throwing a slant route on sort of a follow concept in the end zone. And once he saw the back of that underneath defender turn, like he threw behind the guy, knowing that the slant route was going to cross that guy's face, and knowing that the guy wasn't going to be able to turn around and make a play on the ball. And that was one of those bad. It was like a put the pen down moment. I'm like, look, I don't need to see anything else. Like that's going to work in the NFL. I think that was Air Force. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I agree though. I, I yeah. He's he's one of those guys that if I don't see the Colts take somebody in round one, I'm hoping that he's around when the Colts get a chance to take. I just think that he has yeah. so much developmental uh, ability, you know, with him. But uh, Mark, we got about ten minutes here left, uh, a little bit less than that. But let's talk about Jake Fromm and let's talk about the rest of this class here because Fromm, for me, he's a no go for the Colts. I'm not interested. Um, okay. But I understand all the good points that people have to say about him. I mean, I'm not discounting anything. He's just not to me, and maybe the same for Anthony Gordon. It's just the fact that I there were certain things I liked with him, you know, that kind of stuck out to me, I guess. Jake Fromm, to me, is just kind of a ho-hum guy, and I can't even remember who I compared him to. But uh, basically, uh, all the other, you know, Alabama quarterbacks in the NFL that didn't work, you know what I'm right. saying, where they're all just constant backups. Or, like or, A.J. McCarron. Yeah, like, yeah, I can see that. And I think it was McCarron, actually, that I compared yeah. him to. Um, but just a lot of that, to me, is what I see from him, which isn't terrible. It's not terrible, but the Colts aren't looking for a backup right now. So. Right. And sort of let me make my sort of elevator pitch on Jake Fromm because okay. I think that the league is going to like him. Mm-hmm. And I sort of – I do have him in that second tier of quarterbacks. And I think that there are going to be some settings where he's going to work. And I'll get to those settings in a second. But we can talk about his combine. It wasn't great, the parts we saw, right? Right. Not an athletic guy. Didn't test well. His throwing session, not great, especially when they got into the deeper parts of the throws. Like – He's not a guy that's going to push it downfield. Like, he's limited in that sense. Doesn't have an elite arm. Right. The parts of the combine we didn't get to see, Matt, are where I'm sure he crushed it. Yep. You know, and Interview. similar to what I said about th- that piece I wrote for Waldman's site, but the most important place in Indy for each quarterback for Fromm, it was the whiteboard. Why? Because oh. I'm sure when he walked into a hotel suite and he got the, sh- the dry erase marker in his hand, and he started drawing up protections and all this stuff. He was like, look, these are the protections calls that I was making as a freshman in the SEC at Georgia. Mm-hmm. Like, these are the things that I was asked to do. These are the different route concepts we're running, how we're breaking down these zone coverages. You want to talk about stump, you want to talk about stubby, all the saving stuff that gets thrown at you, which if you're a college quarterback is the closest that you will see to planning against an NFL defense. Like, this is how I'm reading those, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm sure he crushed that part of the combine. I'm sure he crushed that hotel suite part. He was great at the podium, too. And so, <laughs> you know, some of the stuff that we didn't see was probably where he was going to excel. And that's why part of the reason why I think a team's going to love him. The other reason is this I look at Jake Fromm, and he doesn't have the ceiling of any of these guys we've talked about. He might not even have Anthony Gordon's ceiling. But outside of Burrow, he might have the best floor in this class. Hmm. Like, I think you're looking at a guy that, worst case scenario for him, He's Colt McCoy. He's eight. He's 10 years in the NFL. He's your backup spot starter that can win a game. Now, you might be right in that the Colts don't need a backup right now. They need the guy. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But his ceiling is probably an Alex Smith type who can, in the right offense, in the right system, with some talent around you, can get you to the playoffs. And if y'all catch lightning for a season, can get you to a Super Bowl. Yeah. Like, I think there's that potential with him. And I think there are four teams, Matt, where I think. You know, that could need a quarterback in this draft because I think there's a team like, say, Philadelphia where it could work or the Raiders where they could work as well. But I think right now you could drop him into the huddle at Soldier Field and they're a better team than they are with Mitchell Trubisky. Because I think you look at Mitchell Trubisky in that Matt Nagy system, they just need somebody that can make the right decisions on time and rhythm. Jake Fromm can do that. Mm-hmm. Like I think he would be an improvement over Mitchell Trubisky right now. And, probably, and so I think Chicago could work. Probably I think schematic New England could work, yeah. you know, given how they structure their offense. I think Tennessee could work. You get sort of that play action, under center, deep drops. That's a lot of the stuff he was doing with Georgia. And there's another team on that list, Matt, and it's the Indianapolis Colts. Mm-hmm. Like I think with what they do offensively, with how they predicate everything on yardage after the catch and quick decisions and quick throws. Like, I think that would be another scenario where Jake Fromm could work in the National Football League. Now, I know he's not a sexy name, like, at all. Like, you bring up Jake Fromm to most people in this in the draft Twitter world or the football media world, it's like, I'm sure he'll do well, but I, I don't want him for my team. Like, I get that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it, his path to success is extremely scheme-dependent. And with teams like these four, it could work. I'm sure that a guy like Bruce Arians doesn't even have him on his board. Or if he does, <laughs> he's, he's like, right. okay, 
if we're on the clock in the seventh and Jake Fromm's here, like, fine. Like, if you're a downfield offense, you're probably not looking at Jake Fromm. I get that. But if you're mostly a West Coast team predicated on yak, that just needs somebody to get the ball out when it needs to get out of the quarterback's hands to the right guy that's open, Jake Fromm could be your guy. And so that's my sort of elevator pitch on Jake Fromm. Like, I, I get why not everybody loves him. Not all 32 teams are going to like him. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a handful of teams that will. And so would it surprise me to hear him come off the board in the middle of the second round? Maybe to one of these teams? Not at all. Yeah. And I, and I don't disagree with a lot, just about anything that you said there. Um, he's just, I guess, going into uh, you know the article and, and the research that I was doing on him, I'm looking at who's that guy that can come in and start you know, for the Colts. Uh, not, maybe not giving uh, the proper... Uh, respect i suppose to you know the the alex smith comparison as soon as you said that i just started nodding my head i said yeah because that goes that can actually go a long way in the nfl yeah you've got a guy like that that actually understands anything that you're going to throw at him at the drop of a hat and that's uh that's really valuable in a huddle man i mean yeah it, it is and that and that's why i think like you know, and again, like that's his ceiling. Like he might not get there even in an ideal situation. Mm-hmm. But I think if you draft him and you've got the right offense around him, you could reasonably expect that he could get close to that. And look, we've seen guys like Trent Dilfer win Super Bowls. Like we've seen guys like Brad Johnson. You know, he was playing well, but win Super Bowls. Like you don't need, although it seems like it recently, you don't need the Tom Brady's of the world or the Patrick Mahomes to make a run. And so if you get Jake from in the third round on a rookie deal and you load up weapons around him over the next couple of years, you could be in a situation where you can make a run with this kid. Now he might not drag you there. He (laughs) might not, you might not win games because of him, but you can win games with him, I think. And that's sort of like the difference when you start thinking about how you're going to tier quarterbacks. Like there are guys that you win games because of, like the Brady's when he was at his peak or certainly a Patrick Mahomes right now. But then there are guys you win games with and you could say like a Kirk Cousins is that type. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could say that some of the other guys we put out there. And I think that's where you put sort of Jake Fromm. Not a guy that's going to get you there, going to drag you there, but he's going to grapple you there and you can win games with him. Yeah. And I'm not going to I'm not going to argue that point at all. So let's say let's finish you up on this, Mark. Let's say that you've got everybody that we've talked about thus far off the board. Who's the next guy? The earliest you would take him. We're at in the draft. And uh, if you're going to take him, tell me why. I mean, there are two guys that I would put sort of in this sort of category. One is Jalen Hurts. Like and for a lot of the reasons we sort of talked about with Fromm, it's that sort of competitive toughness, that leadership, that fact that like, look, you know what kind of person you're getting in Jalen Hurts. Mm-hmm. And like he's he's gotten better. I know I, I don't always emphasize that the throw-in session at the combine is important or anything like that, but I do look at the mechanics, and he has worked on the upper body mechanics, and they're tighter, they're crisper. That's a big thing for him, so I was impressed to see that. You know, I... I I don't know about his fit, say, in the Colts offense for all the reasons we were talking about in the sense of quick reads, quick decisions. Like That's not his game. Yeah, I think he might be better in a downfield passing game. i kind of intrigued by the idea of him in Tampa Bay. You know, I've been trying to sort of pair Arians with a quarterback for a long time now. I've never gotten <laughs> it right. But I do think Jalen Hurts in the downfield passing offense, a more vertical system might work because he is more of a see-it-throw-it guy. He might need a bit more time to decipher defenses right now. So that could work. And the other guy that is more in that sort of Anthony Gordon tier, because I have Hurts at the end of that tier two, Gordon at the top of tier three, and right next to him is Cole McDonald, the kid from Hawaii. Mm. I I was on Cole McDonald Hill this summer. I came off of it after his disastrous start to the year where he threw four picks against Arizona. But I've worked my way back up that hill. And if nothing else, one of my – perhaps my favorite moment in Indianapolis was I spent – I was – at the right front and center for his entire podium session, like from the first question to the last. Trevor Sikama from the Draft Network, of course, was sitting right next to me, and he was the one that was going to do it. I, I nudged him in that direction, and of course he did. He asked Cole about the dreads, right? Because <laughs> Cole McDonald, he had the long dreads. He cut them before the combine. As he said, RIP to the dreads, which was pretty funny. Yeah. 
But he went into the story about how, like, a man that he looked up to, and he was growing the hair out. He thought it looked good, a little bit of hair coming out the back of the helmet. He said it added a little bit of swag to it. This guy he looked up to told him to grow out the dreads. He got hooked up with a number. He grew about over three years, but then he thought, look, I need to cut these before the combine, going into NFL meetings and interviews and stuff. I need to have a cleaner approach. But he's like, look, like I always say, hair grows back, opportunity doesn't. And Matt, I was floored. Mm-hmm. It was such a great line. But then I was asking him about their offense and the streak read and all the, the route conversions and stuff like that. And then I asked him about the bowl game because in that game, Matt, I don't know if you watched it, but they had game wouldn't drive at the end. They're down against BYU. They have a third and one near midfield with about 50 seconds left. And they've got a crossing route in front of his face that's wide open. And I'm thinking as the play's unfolding, when I'm studying, I'm like, oh, he's going to take the crosser, get the first down, stop the clock, regroup, right? No. He takes the whole shot along the left sideline against cover two and drills it in there for a huge gain on third and one. And so I asked him about it. He's like, look, our offense is a counter-based offense. What you show us defensively, we are going to counter that. And if you give me that whole shot, I don't care if it's third and one, fourth and long, whatever, I'm going to throw it. And I thought that was just another incredible answer from this kid. I love that sort of mentality, you know, that aggressive nature. And so, yeah, if I get into day three and I don't need a guy right away, but I have an opportunity to draft a guy and mold him and develop him, Cole McDonald is at the top of that list. There's some uh, athleticism with him as well. So I Yeah, mean, yeah. He's uh, he's no statue, that's for sure. Not at all. Man, that's a lot of quarterback talk, Mark. Yeah, that's man, exactly. it's a ton of quarterback talk. But look, man, this is the best part of the year for me because I get to talk about quarterbacks and share these stories and talk about these plays. I, I It probably comes to – I just – I love talking about this stuff. It, it's so much fun. I mean, I could go on about you know Brian Lewerke and Jake Lutton and Stephen Montez, Tyler Huntley, the U, the U, the Utah quarterback Tyler Huntley. Don't sleep on this kid. I've got him sort of in that tier three. I love some of the fits. Maybe Indianapolis as a developmental guy, New Orleans. But yeah, I I always geek out on these quarterbacks, man. It's so much fun. I know that's exactly why I have you on here because I love the position as much, or not or probably not as much as you do. But I do love it a lot, and it's a lot of fun to talk quarterbacks with you. Uh, always appreciate your insight. It's always very good, valuable information. My listeners are going to love it because now they're a hell of a lot smarter than what they were uh, before they press play on this podcast. So uh, thank you, as always, for coming by. It was excellent to chat it up with you, man. Uh, make sure you – Mark, tell them the 45 places that you're putting out content. <laughs> I, I got to right, remember them all. I mean, best <laughs> ways on Twitter to follow me at Mark Schofield, but right for places like uh, inside the pylon pro football weekly, Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio, uh, touchdown wire, the, the USA today main NFL vertical over there. Um, three different SB nation websites, big blue view, bleeding green nation, where I co-host the QB Sco show with Michael Kist and Pat's pulpit, where I write about the Patriots and, host the Patriots podcast, the Sco show. So yeah, it's a bunch of stuff. I get it. It's a lot, but at Mark Schofield on Twitter, the easiest way to catch up with the hijinks. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I don't even, I it's, mean, it's look, man, it's you, a lot. I, you've got I 25 you, people emailing you. Hey, what are you going to put up something this week? I don't even know how the hell you pay attention yeah, to who you wrote. That what for. And like, like I think, I originally had three shows scheduled for today. I scaled it back to two. I've got like three tomorrow. I've got like four Thursday. It's a lot, but, I'm living the dream, man. I get to talk about quarterbacks all the time, and people actually, I don't know why, but they give me money to do it. I don't understand it. <laughs> but if they're, gonna, if, if they're going to keep giving me money to do it, then I guess I'll keep doing it. You should keep doing it. Yeah, I'll try. Yeah, you make money, and uh, there's a reason why you're doing that, my man. I appreciate it, buddy. Mark, thank you so much for your time, brother. Thank you, sir. Everybody, check us out on our next show. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the draft, free agency. Everything is coming to a head right now, so uh, make sure you guys are uh, in line for that. Also, Pancakes is coming out uh, this week. We'll probably have another Stampede Radio this week as well, so uh, check us all out then. And, uh, and guys, we will talk to you next time right here on the Colts cast. Stampede Blue.